This is Kevin Davis, author of Editing Humanity, The CRISPR Revolution, and the New Era of Genome Editing. And you're listening to Books on Pod with Trey Elling. Hello, readers. Daniel E. Lieberman is Edwin M. Lerner Professor of Biological Sciences and Professor of Human Evolutionary Biology at Harvard University. He's also the author of the national bestseller, The Story of the Human Body, and his newest book, Exercised, Why Something We Never Evolved to Do is Healthy and Rewarding. Daniel, thank you for the time. As the subtitle suggests, we never evolved to exercise. What do you mean by this, and what does it have to do with the overall goal of this book? Well, physical activity is just moving, right? It's using your body to do something, pick something up, get from here to there. But exercise is a particular kind of physical activity. Exercise is voluntary, discretional physical activity for the sake of health and fitness. And until recently, people had to be active in order to survive. And sometimes they were active to have fun. You know, they danced and played and did everything that we still do today. But nobody went for a five-mile jog in the morning just to stave off heart disease. That's a very modern behavior that we only started doing once people no longer had to work hard for a living. And I think that realization is really important because... There are some of us who do love to exercise, and we manage to do it, but the vast majority of Americans struggle to exercise, and they're made to feel bad. They're made to feel that they're lazy, they're somehow deficient, that there's something wrong with them, that they should just do it, as the commercials say. (laughs) And I wanted to write a book that started off by acknowledging that actually people who resist to exercise are being completely, totally normal, and that we should have compassion for that instinct and understand it and use that information to help people do better. Because, of course, exercise is healthy, but it's abnormal. It's as abnormal as flossing your teeth or paying taxes. You not only go back in history to see how various forms of humans have gotten their physical activity and whether this idea of forced exercise that so many of us engage in now, whether it's running or going to the gym or playing sports or whatever else, just how common that was hundreds of thousands, if not millions of years ago. You also compare modern civilization to modern hunter-gatherer tribes. And for anthropologists who want to study modern hunter-gatherer tribes, they often turn to the Hadza people in Tanzania, Africa. What have you observed when visiting the Hadza with regard to exercise? Well, I've been fortunate to visit the Hadza a few times, and I've never seen anybody do anything that you and I would call exercise. People are certainly physically active. They, I've gone out hunting with both young men and older men. I've gone out watching you know, women digging up tubers and carrying stuff long distances and picking berries but I've never seen anybody go and just lift weights for the sake of lifting weights or going for a run for the sake of going for a run. They don't do that because they're pretty active. Not crazy so. Typical Hadza, according to measurements from some colleagues of mine, spend about two, two and a quarter hours a day doing moderate vigorous physical activity. They also do a fair amount of light work around camp. But they sit actually about nine to 10 hours a day, just like you and me. But they struggle to get every calorie that enters their body. And so just going and just spending unnecessary calories is not a good idea in an environment like that. This book is broken down into four different portions. You just touched on inactivity there. That is the first portion of this book. I was shocked to read that the average 180-pound person who does nothing more than sit in a chair for 24 hours burns 1,700 calories. How are so many calories burned when a person is literally sitting there doing nothing? 
because our bodies are constantly using energy. Just sitting there, every five breaths you take, one of those breaths is paying just for your brain, right? You know, just sitting there between your ears. Even if you're asleep, your brain is consuming something like 20% of your metabolism. Your liver, your kidneys, they're all very energy-hungry organs. So all of that just sort of maintenance, that sort of basic operational background maintenance is, for most people, about two-thirds of their total energy budget. What was the Minnesota starvation experiment, and what did it teach us about resting metabolism? Oh, this is such a fascinating experiment that could never happen again. But towards the end of World War II, or you know, as World War II was going on, and the U.S. government realized that Europe was already encountering terrible starvation, and that we didn't really know what to do to help people who were suffering from serious malnutrition, but also that afterwards, hunger would be an opportunity for our communist enemies to, or allies and enemies, I guess, in a complicated way, to take advantage of the situation. And so the U.S. government wanted to understand better how to help people who were malnourished. And so there was a very famous experiment that was started, funded by the U.S. military, by a guy named Ansel Keys, who's a very famous physiologist. He gave us the K-ration, among other things. So Keyes got a bunch of conscientious objectors during World War II. So these were mostly Quakers who didn't want to fight. And they agreed to starve themselves in a scientific experiment. And Keyes and his colleagues studied every aspect of these people's biology in a very, very, very carefully controlled experiment. And we learned a lot about human physiology from this experiment. But the one thing that was really important for us to understand exercise and sort of metabolism is that Keyes showed from this experiment that your metabolism is incredibly variable. You can really change it. And these guys who lost about 25% of their body weight, uh, mostly fat, their metabolism, their basic metabolism just plummeted. And one of the ways, of course, they saved energy was by, of course, not being active. But Keyes forced them to be active. He forced them to still walk 20-something miles a week. So we learned just how the body sort of allocates energy efficiently in order to help us survive and thrive, even when we're in negative energy balance, when we're either losing weight because we're not eating as much or because we're exercising a lot. In comparing modern man to various other life forms, you go back to other civilizations, you look at modern hunter-gatherers, but you also look at our distant primate relatives. And it was surprising to learn that the average person is more active than the average chimp. Why did we evolve to become more active than primates? <laughs> well, chimpanzees and gorillas, who are our two closest relatives, they live basically in a giant salad bowl. They're kind of surrounded by food, and they don't have to work very hard to get food. Chimpanzees walk just a few kilometers a day, gorillas even less. And of course, they spend half their day eating, just putting stuff in their mouth. But they don't really need to spend a lot of energy, and why spend more energy than you need to? Because what evolution really cares about is how many offspring you have who survive and reproduce. And the more energy you spend on exercise or physical activity, the less you spend on reproduction. So all organisms are pretty much adapted to spend the minimum on physical activity. And some have to be more active and some have to be less active. But primates in general and apes in particular, and chimps and gorillas are apes, kind of evolved to be couch potatoes. So we evolved from couch potatoes. And that's an important story because at some point in our evolutionary history, we turned the dial up, right? We became much more active. We're not like super active compared to some animals, but way more active than our ape cousins. And that left all kinds of indelible marks on our biology. And one of them is just how important being physically active is for our biology. Are we less physically active than many other mammals because of the energy required by our brains? We're 
actually about as active as a lot of mammals and less active than some, but way more than, of course, as, as we said, uh, primates, our close relatives. And our brains certainly do require a lot of extra energy. And the thing about brains is that you can't stop feeding your brain. Your brain doesn't store energy like some other organs in your body. So you always have to be feeding it. It's relentlessly hungry, relentlessly thirsty for calories. And so I think the really key thing about our big brains is that's one of the reasons why humans have a lot more body fat than other animals. So we need to have a larger reservoir, a bigger gas tank, if you will, than other animals, because you always have to have on board plenty of energy to take care of that brain, not to mention other expensive things that we do compared to other animals. We're very energy intensive creatures. And so like any energy intensive car, we need an extra big gas tank. And for us, that gas tank is that we have a lot more body fat than most mammals. One of the things I really enjoyed about this book is that each chapter addresses a physical fitness myth that's stated at its onset. For instance, chapter three tackles whether sitting is the new smoking. The idea that sitting down for long periods of time is as bad for your health as regularly smoking cigarettes. So is it? (laughs) Pretty much everybody knows it's not, right? And I think that's part of the problem with the way in which we medicalize and commercialize health. We scare people and people are smarter than that and they can handle a bit more nuance and complexity than we sometimes give them credit. And sure, I mean, if you sit too much, it's not good for you. But there's nothing abnormal about sitting. Everybody sits. My dog sits. Most animals sit. Hunter-gatherers sit. (laughs) Let's not demonize sitting. Instead, let's look thoughtfully at sitting and try to tell the truth. And the truth is that studies show that the real negative effects of sitting are not sort of sitting at work, right? So if you go to a job and sit at your desk for much of the day, that's not that correlated with negative health outcomes, but leisure time sitting is, right? So if you work all day in your chair and then you go home and sit all night on your couch and watch TV, well, that means you're not exercising. That means you're not getting any physical activity. And that's much more strongly associated with negative health outcomes. And also there are kind of healthier and less healthier ways to sit. And it turns out that sitting very inertly, the way we might do, for example, while watching, say, TV, is also problematic. And it's good to kind of get up every 10, 15 minutes even just to pick something up off the floor or go get yourself a cup of tea or whatever, that helps wake up your muscles and that has all kinds of metabolic benefits. So don't worry so much about how much you sit, but worry about what you're doing when you're not sitting and also just sort of not sitting too inactively. Myth number four is that we need eight hours of sleep every night. Where did that number initially come from? You know, I've been looking all over and I'm not really quite sure. I think it came from the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. When workers would say, you know, eight hours to sleep, eight hours to work, eight hours to enjoy ourselves. It got baked in, I think, at some point in the 19th century, but I'm not really sure. But there never really was any evidence that there's anything magical or special about eight hours. And yet somehow we're all told that we need eight hours of sleep. And actually, I was surprised when I started working on this section, just how strong the data are. Now, there's nothing wrong necessarily with getting eight hours. But people who sleep seven hours tend to do better on average than people who sleep eight hours. There's variation, of course, around the mean. And there's no evidence that our ancestors regularly slept eight hours. And if you go to places where there's no electricity and no TV and no internet, no iPhones and no alarm clocks or any of that kind of stuff, no lawyers, (laughs) you know, people don't sleep eight hours. They sleep six and a half to seven hours on average. I'm still glad that we are in the uh, current idea of what good sleep is versus pre-industrial because of the sleep patterns pre-industrial, including waking up in the middle of the night for an entire hour. What were people doing for those 60 minutes, Daniel? 
<laughs> well, some things are really probably best not talked about on podcasts, but uh, <laughs> uh, nobody really knows. And the thing is that although some people do have a first sleep and a second sleep with an interruption in the middle, that's not true of everybody. I think the more you study sleep, the more you realize just how variable people's sleep patterns are. There's no one special pattern. So if you know you wake up in the middle of the night, you're up for a little while and you go back to sleep, there's nothing weird about that. But there's also nothing weird about sleeping through the night either. There's just no one way to sleep, and that's cool. Yet there's money to be made, though, by scaring people about their sleep, right? You don't fall asleep really fast, or if you wake up in the middle of the night, that's an opportunity to sell somebody some special new mattress or some pill or something else that they probably don't actually need. Sadly, you're right about that. But at the same time, not getting quality sleep can have a detrimental effect on a person's health. What has research found about a lack of quality sleep and what it does to an individual? Oh, well, there's no question. Inadequate sleep is a problem, right? It has problems with memory. It increases your chances of a wide range of diseases. It just makes you more stressed. And of course, once you're stressed, stress is the enemy of sleep. Cortisol levels go up. Cortisol prevents you from sleeping. So the one thing that we really have to do and when we're helping people with sleep is just not get them stressed about it in the first place. And I point out in the book, people can sleep on airplanes. When I was a student, I could sleep in the most bizarre places like the library. And then I go to bed and I'd have trouble sleeping. And it wasn't that I couldn't sleep, it's that I was stressed. It's not that I lost the ability to sleep. Most of us have that. It's that I got stressed at night about sleeping. And I think if we want to be helpful to people, we just need to kind of dial it back and not make people so stressed about sleep in the first place, which just makes the problem worse. The second of four sections in this book is speed, strength, and power. What's the muscular difference between someone who is fast versus someone like yourself, who's a good distance runner, somebody who can outrun horses over the course of a marathon? <laughs> well, speed is really about different kind of muscle fibers. So there's two different, grossly categorizing them. There are fast-twitch muscle fibers and there are slow-twitch muscle fibers. And fast-twitch fibers get a lot of speed and power, but you get tired quickly. And slow-twitch fibers don't generate as much power but they're much less fatigable. So if you want to be like Usain Bolt and run 100 meters in less than 10 seconds, you better have a lot of fast-twitch fibers. <laughs> you don't need the slow-twitch fibers very much. But if you want to run a long distance, you want slow-twitch fibers. And the good news is that most of us have a nice mix of both. And if you train, either for speed or for endurance, you kind of change the relative size of those fibers. You can't switch from one kind to another, but the fibers themselves expand, and so you can get stronger or improve your endurance. So we're incredibly flexible. The story of modern resistance training, a.k.a. weightlifting, begins in New York City in 1903. Who is Angelo Siciliano and what's his story? <laughs> yeah, I love that story because my parents came from Brooklyn and Angelo Siciliano was Charles Atlas. And Charles Atlas got his start on the beach in Brooklyn where my grandparents used to take me when I was a kid. And he was a classic scrawny kid who had sand kicked in his face. At least that's the story he told, and he turned that into a giant commercial empire of fitness training, of strength training. And that was in a time when the Industrial Revolution was basically transforming American work habits, and people were losing their jobs to machines. And so I think he, he kind of hit a nerve at that time of sort of about physical culture to you know, get strong. And of course, there's nothing wrong with it. It's great to get strong, but I think some of us have this idea that incredible strength is sort of normal and natural, and that's not true either. So there's nothing wrong with weightlifting and getting super strong, but let's not pretend that that's our evolutionary normal state. Hunter-gatherers, farmers, they're pretty strong, but they're not super strong. And in fact, muscles are very expensive. So 
if you really seriously weightlift, you have to eat like a horse basically to pay for all that muscle. And again, if you're a hardworking hunter-gatherer who's mostly relying on endurance and don't have a lot of calories, you can't just go down to the local 7-Eleven and get yourself a milkshake or something like that. You don't really want any extra muscle, which is why we have that use it or lose it physiology, right? We gain muscle when we need it. We lose it when we don't. That's an adaptation. Weight training is the most common form of resistance exercise, which consists of concentric, eccentric, and isometric movements. Is one of these three movements more important than the other two? Well, they're all important to survive. If you want to bulk up, though, eccentric weight training has the biggest bang for your buck. When you fire a muscle while the muscle is lengthening, so if you're doing a curl, right, bringing your arm up, so making your elbow angle smaller, has some effect. That's and the concentric movement. That's a concentric movement, exactly. But the real benefit comes from when you extend your elbow with the weight, and then you're holding that weight as your muscle's lengthening, and that really causes the muscle to have to work super hard. And that turns on a kind of a cascade that causes the muscle to bulk up to get you stronger. Research has been conducted on the physical fitness levels of modern hunter-gatherers versus the general population. Why did hunter-gatherers lose less strength as they aged? Because they don't stop working. This is as simple as that. We have a concept of retirement, and most of us don't even have to do much physical work all day long. I mean, I can sit in my chair all day long. I can sit in a chair to get to work in my car, and I can an elevator can take me up to my office, and I stare into a computer. And then when I go to the store, there's all this food. It's already packaged and boxed and I can use a cart to schlep it around the store instead of carrying it. We just don't have to do very much work to survive. But our ancestors didn't have any of these labor-saving devices. They kept using it. As a result, they weren't losing it. So hunter-gatherers aren't super strong compared to Westerners, but they don't lose that strength as they age. And that, of course, has huge benefits. And one of the biggest ones is that one of the biggest issues for aging Americans is a condition called sarcopenia, which is basically muscle wasting. It's the Greek word for muscle wasting. And as people get older, they get really weak and they really lose functional capacity. You, know, you have trouble getting out of a chair, you have trouble moving, you have trouble doing stuff. And then that sets off a vicious cycle and makes it harder for you to do all kinds of other activities that keep you healthy and happy. And so just keeping up some basic physical activities throughout life really pays off enormous dividends, which is why the U.S. Surgeon General recommends that as you age, try to do at least two weight training sessions a week just to keep healthy. You don't have to do a huge amount, but just a little will really have enormous effects. I think that's a pretty good rule of thumb there. This section also covers human aggression, and you write that Richard Rangham points out that compared to other animals, we're less reactive aggressive and more proactive aggressive. What exactly does that mean? Reactive aggression is when, let's just say um, somebody... Um, takes your sandwich at lunch and you just without thinking just hit them <laughs> right because like somebody took your sandwich bash right and whereas proactive aggression is was where you see somebody on the other side of the park and you think hmm i want their sandwich and you come up with a plan to take it from them so reactive aggression is just unplanned reaction whereas proactive aggression is when you premeditate and plan and execute some kind of aggressive act and the thing about humans is that we've learned, compared to other animals, we have brains and culture that really restrains reactive aggression. We don't approve of that. Road rage is an example of a really bad kind of reactive aggression. Nobody approves of road rage. But we're really good at proactive aggression. That's war and other kinds of violence. 
And I think that this distinction between reactive versus proactive aggression helps explain sports because sports are not only fun and, and they teach all kinds of physical skills, they also teach camaraderie and they teach team effort and they also teach us to obey the rules. If your opponents score a goal, it's not acceptable to go and punch them. You're all in this together. And so I think sports and play, which is common to every culture on the planet, has multiple functions, but one of them is to teach us not to be reactively aggressive and to teach appropriate kinds of proactive aggression, that is fighting for the sake of helping each other, which has been true of human societies for millennia. It's one of the things that makes human beings special. So I think it's what sports is partly about. After reading this book, I definitely want to check out a game of Calcio Storico Fiorentino before my life is over with. Oh, my God. So that's this amazing game in Florence that I just stumbled upon once upon a time many years ago when I was invited to give a lecture in Florence. And it's this incredible, it's basically a pitched Renaissance battle in the middle of the <laughs> town square of Florence. And if you want to see how sports can be really aggressive, that's one of the most amazing things you can ever watch. It's absolutely fascinating. So many sports require overhand throwing as part of the competition. Three million years ago, give or take a few hundred thousand years, early hominins started using tools. And this meant becoming more weaponized with spears and other projectiles. Did this cause a profound mechanical change to what eventually became the human body? I think so, yeah. I mean, my students and I have published papers on this about the mechanics of throwing and how we evolved ability to throw. I mean, most animals... Well, we're the only species that can throw really accurately and with power. So if you're ever in a zoo and you see a chimpanzee or some other primate trying to throw something, it'll probably throw it underhanded, in which case you can not be too worried because they're not going to throw it very fast. Or if they throw it overhand, don't worry because they're not going to hit you. They have no aim whatsoever. But humans are able to throw overhand and thus throw with both power and accuracy. And that results from a wide range of special features that we have in our bodies in terms of our shoulders and our hips and the anatomy of our arms that enables us to do that. And of course, that was important for the evolution of hunting, but it also affected the evolution of other kinds of weapons that we use against each other. So today, as a human being, you don't have to be really strong and really powerful to defend yourself or to attack somebody else. By using weapons, we've changed the nature of selection on our bodies. The third of four sections in exercise is labeled endurance. Why is walking the best example of what you hope people learn from this book, Daniel? Because if there is any one thing that we evolved to do a lot of, it's walk. We are a walking creature. Walking is the most fundamental form of physical activity that human beings do. As we talked about before earlier in this discussion, chimps walk just a few kilometers a day. Gorillas might walk a kilometer a day. But humans walk... 10 to 15 kilometers, that's six to 10 miles a day. That's normal. So your typical human hunter-gatherer walks from California to New York, from LA to New York City every year. My gosh. That's just normal and often carrying stuff. That's what we do. That's what we evolved to do. That's not like abnormal walking. That's what we evolved to do. And we're really good at it, especially if we have all kinds of adaptations to do it. And it's really good for us. And if there's any one fundamental basic form of physical activity, that confers health benefits. It's walking, and walking is good for pretty much every system of our body, and it's also good for helping us prevent obesity. And recently, there's been a kind of trend to downplay the role of physical activity for people's struggles with weight. And it's true that you can lose weight much faster by dieting than by walking, 
But that's partly because a lot of the studies that people have used are trying to look for big results really fast. And sure, you're not going to lose a lot of weight rapidly by walking, especially moderate amounts. But if you walk a fair amount every day, you will slowly but surely shed pounds in a very healthy way. Especially if you're doing so in a fasted state early morning. And honestly, walking will lead to wanting to do more physical activity over time as well if you stick with it for long enough. Absolutely. It's the most fundamental, basic form of physical activity, and it's just part of who we are. And of course, it can be really terrible when people can't walk or they lose the ability to walk. But for able-bodied folks, walking is really just the bedrock of physical activity. Those of us who aren't hunter-gatherers in 2020 tried to abide by this idea of 10,000 steps. Where did that number come from? And is that a pretty good benchmark for people to aim for? Well, the funny thing about 10,000 steps is that it was invented in a Japanese boardroom when they came up with this pedometer at the time of the Tokyo Olympics <laughs> back in the 60s. And, you know, they just did, it, it was an auspicious number, but there was no real reason for 10,000 steps. But it turns out that 10,000 steps isn't really all that bad. It's about five miles. And there's lots of evidence which shows that walking five miles a day, if you can, is really good for you. And it's actually probably not far off from what our ancestors did. So you don't need to be law-like about it. I mean, if you like, get you know, like 9,000 <laughs> steps, that's fine. But it's a good goal to shoot for if you can do it. And it'll pay big dividends if you can do that. Chapter nine is on running and dancing. Why did you pair these two activities together? Because they're both about jumping. Running is basically jumping from one leg to another. That's really essentially the basis for running. And dancing is also, for the most part, about jumping. Of course, you can do anything you want when you dance. But a lot of dancing involves jumping, and they're both endurance events. So pretty much every culture until recently, running was part of every culture. People ran. People, there were all kinds of races, both for religious reasons or for hunting or for whatever. And I think every culture also has dance traditions that are also sort of endurance dancing, where people would dance for hours. And I think the two are related. And they're both also the most fundamental forms of vigorous physical activity. So we talked about walking being the bedrock of aerobic cardio activity, but that's kind of moderate, right? If you get up to a brisk walk, you're at about 50% of your maximum heart rate, which is good. But if you want to get above that, that's running or dancing, and that can get your heart rate up more. And again, that's our most basic fundamental form of vigorous activity, and it yields all kinds of benefits. And importantly, our bodies are loaded with adaptations that make us really good at running as well as dancing. It's part of who we are. And running is at the heart of who you are as somebody who exercises. You've run marathons before. You've run races against horses. We'll get to that in just a second. But you've also enlightened me on some terms from the running world that I was unfamiliar with. So what are runophobes, runophiles, and born-to-runners? <laughs> so those aren't words from the general literature. Those are words I made up. So those are neologisms. <laughs> but we all know these types, right? So runophobes are, I mean, if I can cast aspersions on my former father-in-law. Every time we passed a jogger on the streets of the town he lived in, he would say, there goes another person running himself to an early grave. You know, <laughs> There are people who just like don't like running and they get irritated by runners. And part of that is because runners can sometimes be really irritating. The people who brag about their running, they begin sentences with like, well, you know, mile 22, dot, dot, dot. Or they tell you about all the marathons they ran or whatever. They can be pretty tiresome too. And then the final sort of group of people I make fun of are the born to runners. These are the people who read that book, Born to Run, and think that <laughs> that if you don't run, somehow you're a deficient human being, and that if you had been uncontaminated by civilization, you'd get up in the morning, you'd stretch your arms and decide to go run 100 miles, because that's normal. 
That's also silly. That obviously is not true either. The fact of the matter is that running is just a lovely, wonderful thing to do if you like to do it, and it's a skill, and we shouldn't go crazy about it, but it played a really important role in our evolutionary history, and I think that the world would be better off if we had kind of a more rational attitude towards running. So as I've alluded to a couple different times, you did run, I don't know if it was an actual marathon, but you basically ran up and down a mountain versus a bunch of horses. What was that like, and what did it prove about humans' ability to run? (laughs) (laughs) Well, that was an example of putting my money where my mouth is. So we published a paper, a colleague of mine, Dennis Bramble, was at the University of Utah, and I published a paper in 2004 in the journal Nature. The cover of the journal said, Born to Run. That was the advertisement for the paper. The real title of the paper was, of course, much more serious scientific. But we argued that humans evolved to run two million years ago in order to scavenge and hunt. And we describe in the paper a kind of hunting that has been shown to be used all over the world called persistence hunting, where hunters would basically run prey to death, run to exhaustion. So the way it works is that humans aren't really fast, but we have incredible endurance. And we're especially good at keeping cool while we're running in hot environments because we're really good at sweating. Whereas most animals can't sweat or they can't sweat very effectively. So if you chase an animal, it'll run faster than you can, but it won't be able to run for really long. It'll go hide in the bushes. If you can track it and then chase it again before it's cooled down, it's a combination of running and tracking, chasing and walking. So people don't run the whole time and they're not running super fast. You can actually run a big animal like a kudu or a wildebeest or something like that into exhaustion. And so it turns out that I can't, do that. I can't go to the, you know, Kalahari and just run animals to death. But it turns out that there have been races every year in Prescott, Arizona, called Man Against Horse. And, you know, as you might imagine, it started off in the town saloon with a, I think it was the town sheriff uh, against a local runner. And they, they bet a beer or something like that, that the runner could outrun the sheriff on his horse. And that was the start of this race. And they've been holding it every year for quite a few years now. And so I decided I wanted to try it. I'm not a great runner. I, mean, I, I do like to run marathons, but I'm not fast. I'm not going to win anything ever in my entire life. You know, I'm a middle-aged Harvard professor, but I went and tried it. So that year there were, I think, 53 horses and 41 runners. It's a 25-mile race, so it's almost a marathon, but not quite. And it's over this mountain called Mount Mingus, and it was amazing. It was really fun. I managed to beat all but 13 of the horses. And that's even considering the fact that the horses get a veterinary check. So they have to stop because they're riders, of course, on the horses and have their heart rate go down and their temperature go down and get checked to make sure that they're not damaging the horse. And that time is subtracted from their time. Hmm. And the human runners don't get that advantage, right? So we just have to keep running. So the horse is going to cheat a little bit. So it just shows that middle-aged average runners can easily outrun horses over mountain in Arizona. You do a great job of describing all of the different reasons why we're better than other animals at running long distances. You just mentioned sweating and how that helps cool the body down. We have springy legs, elastic hearts. And I was maybe most surprised to come to the realization that we're good at running long distances like other animals that can run long distances because of head stabilization. Is our ability to run long distances brain-related in any way, shape, or form in terms of the ability to focus and stay committed to this long, continual task? (laughs) That's a great question. Possibly. I mean, why else would anybody do it, right? I mean, you know, uh, uh, it does take thinking and planning. And, you know, it's been argued that our ability to run and our intellectual abilities are not dissociated. In fact, there's lots of evidence that physical activity, one of its major benefits is on our brains. 
So I think there's a strong connection between the mind and the body and endurance physical activities, I think, are especially important for that connection. So I would agree with you. There is some connection. It's a complicated one, but there is a connection. One of the myths that you do cover in this book is running and its relation to injuries. Does running erode cartilage in the knees? And why does running result in so many injuries for people? Well, one of the things that the born to runners would say is that running is such natural. If you just take off your shoes, you'll never get injured. And I think that was one of the problems with the barefoot movement is that they were selling snake oil in a way. And you actually say that as somebody who was one of the first to look at the benefits of barefoot running too, by the way. Well, I was studying the evolutionary biology of barefoot running, but I think of everything as having costs and benefits. Never thought of it as a panacea, that barefoot running is going to solve all your problems and make your teeth whiter and girls like you more or whatever. (laughs) But, you know, it's not abnormal either. It's a natural thing to do. And I think we can learn a lot from barefoot running. And it's actually fun. But it's also true that a lot of runners do get injured. And the most common place that runners get injured is in the knee. And I think that a major reason for that is that running is a skill. And... We don't really teach people how to run anymore. And I think when you're wearing a big, comfortable, cushioned shoe, you can get away with bad running form that you really can't get away with if you're barefoot. And that's, I think, one of the benefits of barefoot running. It teaches you to run lightly and gently. If you're crashing into the ground, it's just not good for you, right? And that creates forces that can really be injurious. But study after study after study have shown that running is not bad for the cartilage in your knees. So people who do injure the cartilage in their knees aren't doing it because of their running. That injury comes from other factors. In fact, we've shown that the rate of arthritis in people's knees has more than doubled since World War II. And that's certainly not because people are running more, right? If anything, they're running less. They're less physically active. And in fact, there's lots of studies which also show that running actually is very good for the cartilage in your knees. But if you're running poorly, it can put a lot of stress that can cause patellofemoral pain syndrome and other kinds of knee injuries. But those can be avoided if you learn to run properly. So I think people should relax about running injuries. We should certainly take them seriously. But if somebody tells you, you know, you're going to blow out your knee because you run, that's not entirely true. That's, again, one of those oversimplifications that needs some more close examination. This endurance section also covers the benefits of exercise for the sake of old age. What does research tell us about exercise staving off the effects of old age, namely chronic disease and death? Well, if anything, I think that's the most important chapter in the book. That's the chapter I'm probably most proud of, which is that we evolved to be physically active, but we especially evolved to be physically active as we age. We're the only creature, with the possible exception of orcas, of killer whales, that lives after we stop reproducing. And I think that that's related to physical activity because as grandparents back in the old days didn't retire and move to Florida or wherever and just put their feet up. Grandparents were working hard. They were hunting and gathering and getting food and helping out their children and their grandchildren and thus improving their reproductive success. And as we age and stay physically active, we turn on all these repair and maintenance mechanisms that keep our bodies young. And so physical activity is good throughout the whole lifespan. When you're young, it helps you develop skills and develop a good, healthy body. And as we continue to age, it remains important preventing high blood pressure and preventing metabolic disease and preventing low bone mass, which leads to osteoporosis. And the list goes on. And as we get older, those stresses that come from physical activity don't become less important. They become more important because they keep our bodies healthy. So we never evolve to stop being physically active. And in fact, the older you get, the more the physical activity is important. 
It's interesting. This is the second straight book that I've encountered the grandmother hypothesis, with the first being Dr. Dilip Jeste's Wiser. How does the grandmother hypothesis work on exercise and aging? Well, the grandmother hypothesis is sort of what I just stated, which is that humans evolved to live beyond our reproductive years. So the typical hunter-gatherers live about two decades after they stop reproducing, usually into their 70s. But remember, the grandmother hypothesis, the reason that these grandparents are still around is not just to impart wisdom and information to their grandchildren, but also to give them food, right? And getting food back in the day meant being physically active because you couldn't just go to the supermarket. You had to go dig up stuff and collect stuff and carry it back and process it without the help of you know, all these machines that we have in our kitchen. So grandparents back in the day were very physically active. And so there's a kind of interaction between the fact that we evolved to be old in order to be physically active, but the physical activity helped us as we aged. And so there's this interaction between aging and physical activity. And I think that explains just why it's so important. So back, if you look at the data, one of the most famous studies by a guy named Paffenberger, who did the first big epidemiological studies showing that exercise improves longevity, he showed that alumni from Harvard and University of Pennsylvania, this is the famous Harvard alumni study, that Harvard alumni who were physically active in their 50s, 60s, and 70s had half the death rate of the ones who were less active. Half. That's an enormous effect, right? Whereas when they were in their 20s and 30s, there was almost no effect on longevity, of course. So the older you get, the more that physical activity has benefits for health and for longevity and for preventing chronic diseases that tend to kill us today, like heart disease and diabetes and cancer and so on. And that speaks to the uh, portion in this section near the end where you make the distinction between lifespan and health span and look at what health span is for individuals in modern times versus where it has been. Hunter-gatherers, of course, are compared here as well. Highly encourage people to pick up this book for many reasons, but for that one as well. The fourth and final section is exercise in the modern world. Daniel, did I read correctly that only one in four children get at least an hour of exercise every day? And if so, how do we improve something like that? Because that is crucial. Isn't that scary? But it's true. You know, we live in a world today where we're so worried about tests and there's so much involved in sort of sitting in front of screens and in desks that kids aren't getting enough physical activity. And yet every kid should get an hour of running around every day. That's really important for their health and not just physical health, but also their mental health. And we who are parents and members of school boards and just the community in general are really abrogating our responsibilities by not helping kids be more physically active. And it's going to involve many, many solutions. There's no one single simple solution, but it's going to involve parents. It's going to involve schools. It's going to involve communities. It's going to involve politicians. It's a complex, but it has to start as a priority. And right now, I just don't think that we think of it as a priority. And we're, we, that is our children, are paying a huge price for that. You also tackle whether there is a proper amount and the best types of exercises. Common thought is that 150 minutes of moderate activity a week will provide all of the benefits that we've been discussing throughout the course of this conversation. Do you agree with that number? Well, it's not a bad number, but there's no one number, right? I mean, Hmm. everybody's different. And so if you look at the effects of physical activity, if you're inactive and you're struggling to exercise, Anything is better than nothing, and it'll give you huge benefits. And 150 minutes just happens to be a reasonable amount that the U.S. Surgeon General and various committees have picked out because it 
roughly halves your rate of death. So it's not a bad number, but if you're struggling to exercise, 100 minutes a week or 50 minutes a week is still better than none. And if you're able to do more than 150 minutes a week, you'll get more benefit than simply doing 150 minutes. So there's no one number, and it's going to also depend on your level of fitness and your age and your abilities and what you're worried about. Are you worried about cancer? Are you worried about Alzheimer's? Are you worried about heart disease? Are you worried about osteoporosis? There's no one outcome variable to measure as well. So we all have to kind of come up with our own exercise plans and our own exercise goals. But I think, again, the most important thing is that whatever you do is better than none, and more is generally better. But as you keep doing more, the benefits eventually tail off. So, you know, you don't need to run marathons to be healthy. That's definitely not true. Other than the benefits tailing off, is there such a thing as too much exercise where it actually becomes harmful for you? Well, that's a big if. Nobody's really sure. I think most people suspect that's the case, but there's not a lot of really strong evidence for that, at least epidemiological evidence. But there's certainly anecdotal evidence. The one area where I think most people are especially concerned and for which you need to be especially cautious is in terms of infectious disease. So right now we're, of course, suffering in this pandemic. And one thing that I worry about is that physical activity does upregulate your immune system. So you're healthier and you're better able to fight this virus if you're physically active. But there's worries that if you're super physically active, if you're out running marathons on a regular basis, you're going to take up so much energy from your body, you're going to take energy away from your immune system and make yourself more vulnerable. And jury's out on that one to some extent. There's a lot of debate on that. But at this point, I'd be cautious. <laughs> I would not be running marathons every day if I was trying to stay healthy from this virus. But that's such a tiny, tiny, tiny fraction of the population. I mean, how many people are we really talking about compared to the rest of us who are struggling to get enough exercise? It doesn't really matter. We're talking about a very small, crazy, lunatic fringe. That's just not really a public health issue. There are three major types of exercise, moderate intensity aerobic exercise, things like getting on the elliptical or running, high intensity aerobic exercise like HIT, high intensity interval training, and resistance exercise, weightlifting. Each of these types of exercise cause our brain to create numerous mood enhancing drugs as a result of said physical activity. The most important of these drugs being dopamine, serotonin, endorphins, and endocannabinoids. What are endocannabinoids? That's basically the same stuff you get from marijuana. And that's the primary basis for a runner's high. And, and you get those mostly from endurance, not from weightlifting or resistance exercise. But several hours of running can give you a runner's high. And the cool thing about runner's high is that not only do you upregulate, your brain produce all these endocannabinoids, which make you high, but your brain also produces more receptors for the endocannabinoids. So it's pretty intense. I've had the pleasure of having some runner's highs in my life, and I can tell you they go on for days. It's a nice reward for that activity, but it takes time, and you can't just get it from half an hour. But I think it's, again, one of these evolved mechanisms because it helps us, you know, if you think about what happens in a kind of high, you have an intensity of experience. Blues become bluer, and your perceptions of stimuli get aroused, and that might be important for hunting as you're tracking an animal, for example, you, you have a hyper awareness of all the things around you, not to mention a good feeling about it. And perhaps it's an adaptation for our ancestors to hunt, but that's just a hypothesis. I can't prove that. So my favorite chapter in this book is chapter 13, titled Exercise and Disease. You do an excellent job of explaining some of the most widespread morbidities, the issues they cause, 
how exercise helps, and the best types of exercise to reverse each. Things like obesity, metabolic syndrome, type 2 diabetes, cardiovascular disease, musculoskeletal conditions, and cancer. Can physical activity potentially help with cancer, and if so, how? Well, I'm glad that you like that chapter because I worked really hard on it for a long time and got a lot of help from friends in the medical world. But it's true. We know that exercise is healthy, but how and why is not so clear. And I wanted to provide a compendium for people to look up a particular disease or particular concern and get some sort of up-to-date, sensible information. And I think cancer, of all the ones that we talk about, cancer and I think also mental health are the ones that we just don't talk about enough because the evidence is compelling that not for all cancers, but some cancers, that physical activity has enormous benefits. And we're not entirely sure of all the mechanisms by which it's the case. So one is that physical activity uses glucose in the bloodstream, and and a lot of cancer cells are really sugar-hungry. So you cut the energy substrate that those cells are using. It certainly reduces inflammation, which is very important in the process of generating cancer. Physical activity prevents excess hormones like progesterone and estradiol, and sometimes maybe also testosterone that cause cancer. It improves blood flow. There are a whole series of mechanisms by which physical activity affects the body in ways that can lower cancer risk. So going back to that 150 minutes a week we were talking about earlier, there's plenty of evidence that women, for example, who exercise 150 minutes a week reduce their risk of breast cancer by 30 to 50%. I mean, that's huge. Wow. And we spend a lot of time in this country fighting cancer, but we don't really spend enough time, I think, or enough energy or enough effort preventing cancer. And I think that's really where we should be focusing a lot more effort. And along with diet, physical activity is really, really important for preventing many cancers. And I hope that we can get that information out to people because it's important. Very well said. And I'm glad you also mentioned mental health issues at the start of that answer, because I did want to ask how exercise can potentially help with depression and anxiety as well. Well, when you're physically active, it just turns on this host of really good molecules that our bodies produce, dopamine and serotonin and something called brain-derived neurotropic growth factor, BDNF, and more that are really important for our brains, for how our brains function. And again, it's not a magic wand. It's not going to transform people from one state to another, but it really plays a major role. Exercise plays a really major role, in, especially in depression and in other kinds of aspects of mood, it just makes us happier. And I think that a lack of physical activity is a kind of mismatch, right? That we're just never evolved to be inactive for long periods of time. And as a result, our brains aren't getting the kind of dopamine and serotonin doses that we evolved to expect. And as a result, we're more likely to be vulnerable to depression and anxiety and other mental health problems. So for millennia, people have known that exercise is good for not just physical health, but also mental health. And I think we all know that instinctively too, but What's cool is now we have really good scientific evidence about just how that works. Daniel E. Lieberman is Edwin M. Lerner Professor of Biological Sciences and Professor of Human Evolutionary Biology at Harvard. He's also the author of the national bestseller, The Story of the Human Body, and his newest book, Exercised, Why Something We Never Evolved to Do is Healthy and Rewarding. Dan, thank you so much for the time today, and thank you for this excellent book. Oh, it's my great pleasure. Thank you so much. And thanks to you for listening today. A reminder that you can give us a follow on social media at Books on Pod. And you can hear all of our episodes at BooksOnPod.com or by searching Books on Pod with Trey Elling wherever you listen to podcasts. If you're on Apple Podcasts, please do leave a five-star rating and review. Helps us grow the show. 
We'll talk to you next time on Books on Pod.